We live and die unto the Lord. Looking back upon our history, it's easy to see the reason why the kinds of issues we see in verses 1 through 9 of Romans 14 disturb or trouble us. The church had been strictly Jewish, with a few notable exceptions, separated from the Gentiles' world by God's grace, and also by a variety of rituals and practices that God had commanded to be observed. God had, in effect, declared that the whole world was unclean except for his promised Messiah and his obedience to his law, both moral and ceremonial. The Jews, however, were also unclean. For they buried the hope of the Messiah under all the types and shadows that pointed to the Messiah, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And they wound up making all of religion to consist in these various ceremonies. So when the sun came out, when the sun of righteousness arose with healing in his wings, when the Lord Jesus came, those Jews who did not believe or who did believe in him struggled with the types and the ceremonies. (coughs) Does his coming mean that the entire old economy of ritual was to be abandoned? Some tried to blend the two worlds. Others made Gentile salvation, like in Galatia, dependent upon you must be circumcised to be a Christian. You must keep the dietary laws. You must follow the holy days. And even where the Gentiles were begrudgingly accepted into the church, they too were expected in many circles to hold on to the former way of life. Many of the Gentiles, of course, acquiesced. Some of them had been brought into the church, at least in the outer court, through the older Jewish tradition and ritual, so they were used to this. But of course, with both Jew and Gentile, especially Gentiles who, like Paul, realized, wait a minute, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. It's not a matter of the old economies, rituals, and traditions. So when both of these elements existed in the same congregation, we can understand why it would have been potentially inflammatory because for the Jews, it was, this is our way of life. This is how we have related to God. This is how we have related to the world. So division and hurt feelings and pride were always but a step away. And an unwise word away, an invitation to a dinner party away, where the older rituals were not necessarily followed anyway. We see something of this very challenge in our day. We're all Gentiles here, and maybe some would prefer more, some less ritual within the worship of the church. Some may have stronger preferences for one kind of music versus another. Our backgrounds, our interests, our struggles have shaped us and made us different and sometimes have made it difficult for us to love those who differ from us in outward ceremonial type things like ritual liturgy. 
but also even in secondary aspects of Christian practice. What are we to do? What were they to do? Are we to divide? Are we to argue all the time? Or are we to settle into, well, this is my group and I'm comfortable here. Everyone else, I'm not too sure about them. Maybe I can't get along with people who don't share every single application of whatever in the same way I do. Points of doctrine, practice, liturgy, worship, whatever it may be. So what are we supposed to do? This specific issue here in Romans 14, we won't deal with today. But I assure you that the underlying danger remains with us just as much as it was with them. Pride, love for our own opinions, traditions, our fear of being thought to be soft, our desire to be right. These things can bring division, trouble, even separation. So what are we to do with them? Well, we began looking at this question a couple of weeks ago. We will begin, we will pick up today in verse 5, where Paul gives another example of this kind of issue of days, the ceremonial or liturgical calendar of the older covenant, those days of feast, the feast of the tabernacles, the feast of Passover, etc. Now, obviously, in Rome, this wasn't a Judaizing issue like in Galatia, because remember, in Paul's letter to Galatia, he got onto the Judaizing element and said, you're wrong. You've compromised the gospel. And he demanded for the practices to be abolished because they were so attached to the gospel that some of the congregation were saying, you can't be saved unless you follow these Old Testament obligations. That was not the issue in Rome. The Judaizing party was evidently not there. But there were some who were saying, we should still follow the older calendar. We should still observe this day. And it obviously, this is not the Lord's day being spoken of here, because the apostles and the church observed the Lord's day, and it is referred to throughout the New Testament. In fact, it was part of God's moral law, but the ceremonial days were not. So notice what Paul says here at the end of verse 5. Perhaps a first point to answer the question, what do we do about differences of ceremony, differences of tradition, and perhaps even differences of application of moral principles? All believers, for example, would say we should tithe. But I guarantee if you took a poll in here, some people would say you should tithe on your gross income, and others would say, no, you tithe on the net income. So there might be a difference on a secondary point that doesn't materially impact our faith. Yet, of course, with these kinds of issues... What are we then supposed to do? First, at the end of verse 5, be fully persuaded in our own mind. 
Now, this is a very dynamic and very interesting principle. It obviously doesn't mean that I've got to be fully persuaded whether or not I believe in the Trinity or whether I believe in the Lord's Day in keeping it or whether I believe in being with God's people during congregational worship. Those are not the kind of issues we're talking about here. But on these secondary points of ceremonies and others that I have mentioned, we have a duty even on those to come to clear convictions as to what God's will is. Now, we may not all agree on what that conclusion is, but we have the duty as disciples of our Lord to love Him with our mind and not to arrive at our opinions haphazardly, nor to be mushy-minded to say, well, there are some areas of life that don't matter. We can kind of do what we want to do. It's very clear from the flow that we are about to see even those secondary points are aspects of Christian discipleship, that there is no area of serving Jesus where I can just walk away and say, ah, whatever. Notice how he follows up on this in verse 6. He that regards the days regards it unto the Lord. He that does not regard the day to the Lord, he doeth not regard. He doth not regard, sorry. So Paul is going to draw from this now all these secondary kind of issues, ceremony or applications of applications where God's word is not definitively spoken and the opinions of God's people have been divided over the centuries. Notice here what the important things are. One, we must search Scripture. We must be in a common submission to God's Word so we can, as much as possible, with the light God gives us, be persuaded that what we are doing is pleasing to Him. And two, that we are doing it unto the Lord. That phrase there is repeated, as you can see, several times in verse 6. It is repeated so many times in these lines as if to say, we can't miss it. Everything we do is to be done in regard to the Lord. That is what the idea here means behind regarding in verse 6. What does he think about what I'm doing or not doing? For the weaker brother, he wouldn't eat certain foods. He would observe certain days. He just, like the stronger, must do it unto the Lord. Doing it not because it is his tradition, or because he prefers this, or because he is a Jew, and this is what Jews do. No, no. It is to the Lord that our lives have fundamental and exclusive reference. He has purchased us, so we're not our own. So there's no, there's no sense of, well, I do this because it works for me, or I do this because it is convenient for me, or I do this because this is the way my dad did it. We don't 
have to have regard for such things. Those are not the dominant principles of discipleship. So, principle number one is to do everything unto the Lord. Can I stand before Him and say, Lord, I did this out of conscience, that this was pleasing to You? Now, that conscience is not solitary. It has to function within the body where our views are shaped and checked and where we are held accountable to each other. But while we are going to be gathered into one together in Christ, we are also going to, each one, stand before the judgment seat of God. So the issue becomes, well, am I doing this under the Lord if I eat this? Or for the strong, well, I am going to eat it under the Lord, but I am not going to observe the days unto the Lord. Why? Because I am morally and theologically superior to those fools who still think we are supposed to live under a cloudy day when the Lord Jesus has come and brought us a sunny day? No. That is not why the strong eat any more than why the weak refrain from eating. It is because the strong with thankful hearts say, Lord, thank you that you have cleansed all foods. Thank you that you have given us your word and brought Jesus into the world, so I'm going to eat this, and I'm going to, uh, not going to observe these days with a thankful heart in reference to you. Now this is a huge principle, because it means that each one of us has a responsibility to make this the dominant principle in our lives. For me to live is Christ. It is what I am doing in my home. It is how I spend the Lord's day. It is how I relate to brothers and sisters in the body that do not necessarily see certain secondary issues like I do. How do I relate to the Lord about those issues? Because it is before Him that we move and live and breathe and have our very existence. And see... There is also a basis for unity in that, even if we differ. Because if each one of us is living under the Lord, and we are all studying God's Word, I may not be seeing it as my brother or sister does, but we are all in His Word, and we are all trying to live unto the Lord, and the dominant principle of our lives is to please Him and that does something to us. That makes us all humble. There's no way to lead the disciples' life and be prideful or to demand that everyone hold my view on secondary issues and that my personal scruples are binding on everyone else. No, that is not the disciples' way of life. So... Paul moves from what is in essence a secondary ceremonial ritual issue into, wait a minute, this touches on a much broader discipleship issue. What are we living for? Is it for our traditions? Is it for our convenience? Is it for me? Or are we living unto the Lord? Wayne my personal activities, weighing my individual choices, my moral choices, family choices, everything 
unto the Lord. We are supposed to live in this way as disciples. So he goes on in verse 7. Now, and, and just builds on this to a crescendo. None of us lives to himself. It's funny. If you ask the weak if they were weak, they would probably say, no, of course not. We've been doing this for 2,000 years now. And if you ask the strong, do you, well, of course the strong thought they were in the right. But both groups of believers thought, I'm right, the other one's wrong. No one in the church would have continued in those days to follow the Jewish calendar and said, well, I know I'm wrong doing this, but I'm going to do go ahead and do it anyway. This is something you had to make a volitional, emotional decision that you were attached to do it. It was a choice, and you obviously did it because you believed it was right. And it was to you pleasing to the Lord. But in the midst of all that, Paul had to remind them that no disciple is free to live as he pleases. We do not live unto ourselves, which means I can't think like I want to think. I can't think my own thoughts. You see, every other thought is maggot thought, dust thought. So each one of us must be in a common submission to God's word so that I'm not living for me. I want my opinions to be approved. So if they are not, you can well imagine the week we come up to each other at church and we may have various differences, but we'll shake hands or maybe even give a hug. But it would be interesting to be in one of those congregations where you had both elements. You had the Jews there, and then, of course, are they going to give the Gentiles a kiss of, of greeting? No, he may have had bacon for breakfast. He may have had pulled pork at barbecue last night. And he, of course, he didn't follow that holy day. So you can understand why there's kind of, well, we're here and we're kind of together, but, you know, Paul ran into this issue in Antioch when Peter came up and they were eating with Gentiles and Peter was right there with them and everything was going great. Even Peter was a Jew, even though Peter was a Jew and you had Gentiles in the congregation. Paul was right there and it was a great time. Peter and Paul together with these new believers. And then suddenly, a group of Judaizers come up from Jerusalem. Peter, what are you doing? Peter, we're glad these people may have come to Jesus, but you've got to understand that coming to Jesus must go through, to Jesus they must go through the gate of the way we understand. The rituals and the ceremonies and the types of the Old Covenant and if they're not going to follow them, then Peter, what are you doing? So Peter backed off. He's confused. An apostle. So Paul has to stand up in the middle of the congregation and rebuke him to his face. What are you doing, Peter? It's one thing to say, 
Hey, if you want to have your liberty, practice it to the Lord. But it is another thing entirely to say, I'm not going to have fellowship with you because you take a different view on something that is a secondary aspect of application or ritual or a ceremony. So that is why Paul brings us to verse 7 and just pierces each one of us. We are not free to live for ourselves because we are bought with a price. So Krista belongs to the Lord. Tony belongs to the Lord. Matt belongs to the Lord. As a body, we belong to the Lord. We are not free to live to ourselves or even to die to ourselves. And we'll talk more about that phrase in just a moment. But get this down. We need to recover this today. We may not lead self-actuated, self-thinking, self-focused lives as disciples of Jesus, even if we think we are right. Because notice he is saying this to both groups, and both of them would have thought they were correct. Both of them. So what are we supposed to do? Well, he's already told us in verse 6, and he'll go back to it in verse 8. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord, or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. In other words, Lord, what pleases you here? Certainly not when we think of ourselves. Listen, Lord, can I sit on your right hand or left hand? Instead of saying, Lord, can Ken sit on your right hand? I'm willing to sit in the back row. How can I wash this brother's feet, Lord, like you washed my feet? Because I'm living under you. Even with those who disagree how I can serve and how I can minister and how I can pray for them, because life is not about me. You know, Christianity and the American dream do not go together. They are actually contradictions. And the older I get, the more I realize this, because so much of the American way of life is me, 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 me. What makes me convenient? What will educate me so I can get more of what I want? But our situations as Christians is different. We have a Lord who was raised from the dead, so each one of us should be asking, is what am I doing to please Him? So that leads us to His Word. Because we can't know what pleases the Lord by, well, I just feel this. Or it's my tradition. Or I just think I can say, Jesus, 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 and that justifies everything I do. No, that leads me to His Word. And guess what? It is doing to everyone else. All other disciples are also going to his word. So there is a common humility that we have. Even if there may be disagreements on a lot of things like, I want this kind of music. Or I think we should use this kind of bread in the Lord's Supper. And I'm not sure I can really hold fellowship with someone who has this view on the tithe issue or the tax question. You know, we, all, we are all in common humility 
before the Word. And we've been given different levels of grace and understanding. But let me tell you, we must recover in this day and age either this sham unity where the churches don't talk about doctrine at all, where disputed issues that are important in themselves but aren't vital to the faith are never discussed, or where everyone just says, I'm setting up my home church and I'm lobbing bombs at everyone else because there are really no secondary issues of doctrine or of ceremony or of practice. And so everything becomes a dividing line. And if that is the case, we all might as well go home. Instead, we need to recover this. We live and die unto the Lord. We are all brothers, and we only have one master. And that means there is no one in here who is higher up the ladder than anyone else. Plus, let's say you are smarter. Let's say you do no more. Let's say your views are more correct. What did Paul say? If anyone thinks he knows anything as he ought to know, he doesn't. Because the more grace God gives and the more light God gives, the more humility we are to have. Because the goal of the commands is as we read in first as you we read in first timothy is charity it is love it's not i'm right it's not remaking the whole world in the image of what i think it should be the goal of the commands is charity out of a pure heart and faith unfeigned so if god has given you grace to be the stronger party what is the goal of that to take the lowest seat, to be the humblest of all. If God has not, has not given you grace and in one or more areas you are in the weaker party, what are you supposed to do? i got to hold on doggedly to what I believe. I've got to maintain this because, no, I'm supposed to be with the body and grow in Christ, in a Christ-likeness with the stronger because whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Is that us? Do you wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to renew my vows with Jesus today. I'm going to renew my love vows to Jesus Christ throughout the day. Lord, I, 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 am I doing my work heartily unto you? Lord, did I respond to my children as I should have? when they were really grating on my nerves and I had to say no for the 3,000th time, did I respond as unto you as, or was that response for me? Lord, I'm burning out. None of this is fair. I'm sick of it. What of all the noise? You get the point? In everything we do, the goal is, does this please the Lord? Not Gary Wagner. Am I living under the Lord so that I'm thinking about it? He is our other self. We are united to Him. We are dead. 
but our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And that is why discipleship may grow cold. For when iniquity abounds, the love of many grows cold because we lose this very, very simple thing. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow, well, I like this tradition, or I like these causes that I can stand for as a Christian, or I want people to hear my views? No, Jesus says discipleship is if any man will come after me. Many people in Jerusalem, read John 2, 23 through 25 this evening saw the miracles Jesus was doing, and they were like, man, we want Jesus. This guy's great. Look at his power. He heals people. He raises the dead. He feeds the multitudes. And Jesus is just, I don't want you. Interesting. They believed in him. Same word, pasteo, for faith, normal saving faith. But Jesus did not pasteo them. He didn't believe in them. Why? Because we must want Jesus Christ above all else and want to be disciples for Him because we love Him, because He is the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've got to recover this because if we don't, discipleship is lost and then Christianity is lost and then it is just competing views out there. Then it's just fracture. And then it's schisms. Or it's showtime. Because no one's going to fight with showtime. It's fun, it's games, it's bread, it's circuses, it's distracting, it's low-cost discipleship. But each one of us who realize that we have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, the question of life is not these other peripheral secondary things, but it is, am I living unto the Lord? Where am I holding on to me? Where do I want life to go like I want it to go? Where am I trying to hold my brothers accountable, not to clearly moral standards given in God's word, but on secondary points of ritual or worship that I like, and I can't really get close to them because they don't see my point? Well, that's not the issue. The issue is, am I living before the Lord Humbled before Him. And then that draws us to want to be with His people. We want to worship with them. We want to be with them to study God's Word. We want to pray together. Is it costly? Yes. But I'm not going to give the Lord that which costs me nothing. A disciple never counts the cost. A disciple looks at Jesus and says, there is no cost too great. He's like David Livingston, the great missionary of Africa, who after years and years of serving the Lord there and doing incredible things, someone asked him, why did you make so many sacrifices? Or how could you make so many sacrifices? 
And he said, I've never made a sacrifice. What? You lost your health. You lost some of your family. You've lost everything. And he said, I've never made a sacrifice. Why? Because he looked to Jesus, the crucified, the one raised from the dead, the one who laid down his life for us. And that is why we can say, I've never made a sacrifice. I've never given anything. I've never given any time. I've never given any money. I've never paid anything. Life, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because I am the only one who does any pain. I am the only one who pays any cost. So we have got to get over this. Well, you know, this will be inconvenient for me if I have to do this. Or this will bust up my family's schedule. Or this will pinch me a little bit if I'm around people who don't share my views on various things. Oh, God forbid. Forget all of that. Those are irrelevant, prideful, potentially inflammatory, dangerous, divisive attitudes. That would be the opposite of verse 7, living for ourselves. We are to live for one Lord, and the only question is, does this please Him? Does this promote Him? You know, John the Baptist is a perfect illustration of this. A lot of people were following after Jesus when they heard him. John was pointing them out. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John had gathered a cadre of disciples around himself. But they started one by one leaving to go to Christ. And John was left with just a small number. And Jesus had embraced all of these men and women. So people went to John and said, You know, John, he who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, to whom you bear witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all men are going after him. All the men are going after him. And John didn't say, Oh, rats, I wish I would have kept my group with me. John said, You know, the friend of the bridegroom, he doesn't get mad that when the preacher's up there doing the marriage vows, everyone's not taking pictures of the best man. He doesn't worry about it. He hears the voice of the bridegroom, and that is what makes his heart happy. Plus, remember, John said he must increase, but I must decrease. He is the only one. I am nothing. I am merely a shadow player. I'm off the stage. The sooner I make myself obsolete, the better, because the day is coming. Christ is coming. So how do we apply that to ourselves? In our homes. Take the marriage, for example. We struggle. The husband thinks he's right. The wife thinks she's right. And they believe this is a matter of real strong principle. We are convicted, and yet, the way we go about it, even if we are right, defending that principle oftentimes denies the gentleness and meekness and humility 
that is in those who are saying, or should be saying, I must decrease. The only thing that matters here is not that my wife does what I tell her to do, or that my husband acquiesces to my superior whatever. The only thing that matters here is that Jesus Christ increases in our relationship, that His will is done, that we as husband and wife are living unto Him, dying to ourselves, living unto Him. That is all that matters. Controlling my children doesn't matter. What matters is that my children decrease in selfishness and increase in Christ and that Jesus increases in them. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's interesting, this phrase here, that he says three times in verses 7 and 8, that we also die unto the Lord. Our death will be our last earthly act of consecration unto the Lord. Let's think about that for just a moment. We die unto the Lord. So let's say I've lived a long and full life, and the Lord has really blessed me, and I know my day is drawing near. Part of, I think, dying unto the Lord is just, Lord, I'm not going to hold on. It's not my goal that I've got to live as long as I can. No, I'm dying unto you, Lord. And when you're ready, I'm coming. We die unto Him, an intentional act of consecration to Christ. Let's say we get a disease. We find out we're going to die early. Although really no one has ever died early, right? Or we get in an accident and we're sitting on the side of the road and our blood and guts are spread everywhere and we know this is it. Oh man, I had so much more I wanted to do. But okay, Lord, you must be calling me today. So I'm yielding to you. I'm going to die unto you just as I lived unto you. Or let's say it's a martyr's death as Christians are being killed today on the other side of the world. What a privilege it is to suffer for Jesus. I can't believe that he who shed his blood for me would let me shed my blood to defend his honor. What a privilege. But Jesus has fundamentally altered our relationship to death. You do understand this, right? He swallowed death. He paid its full claims. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, I'm going to become sin for my sheep. I'm going to fully satisfy divine judgment, and I am going to die. Everything that is horrible about death, judicial death, cursed by God, the hell of death, I'm taking that upon myself, and now, because Jesus has done that, our whole relationship to death has changed. We don't fear it any longer. And it's not because of arrogance. It's Jesus. Because He has the keys of death on His belt and He owns death. He is the Lord of death. So I have no fear of death whenever, however, it comes. 
Now, it doesn't make us careless with our lives. It makes us bold when we look at death. Boldness in that day of judgment. But he has also, therefore, changed our attitude about death. To be absent from the body is what? Oh, no. What are my children going to do when I'm gone? What's my wife going to do? I mean, there are legitimate human concerns, but the predominant concern needs to be, I want to serve Jesus even in this. I want to be consecrated to Him even in my death. I'm not afraid of it. I love Him. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, he concludes and says, This is the reason Jesus died and rose again and revived. This is the only time that third element is added, revived. And it basically means that Christ, the humiliated, has now entered into a new sphere of life. Peter proclaimed on Pentecost, Act 2.30, Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, crucified in weakness, humble. He has made him Lord and Christ. He has entered into his mediatorial glory and dominion. And that is why he died and rose again, and he revived. Now let me make this small application first, and then a big one. In context to this means that Jesus died, rose again, and revived so that we would not bicker about secondary issues, because that's the whole flow here. Why are you bickering? So there are some Jews, and there are some Gentiles. You've got differences in traditions, backgrounds, and convictions about peripheral issues. Well, Jesus died rose again and revived so that he would be your Lord, not your traditions, not your preferences, not your backgrounds, but him alone. Then the big application that goes beyond this specific case is that he is the Lord of the dead and of the living. I want you to think about this. Right now, we are living. Sometime this week, for some of us, There may be a dying day. But Jesus died and rose and revived to be the Lord of every period and area of our lives. There is no area where we can say, well, you know, I kind of do what I want here. I can watch this movie and I can have this attitude toward my brother and the church. The principle is way broader than just this particular issue, whether it may, whatever it may be. How we treat one another. How we arrive at the conclusions that we do by studying scripture. But that we speak the truth in love is what's important. You know how it is. We come to something and we've studied some issue and think, oh, we've got this in the bag. This is the way, walk ye in it. Then we run into someone who says, well, yeah, but have you thought about this? And then we realize everyone doesn't hold to that view and then heads start budding and feelings get hurt. 
what we need to remember. That that brother or that sister with whom I am debating and discussing and talking, Jesus is their Lord, not me. Just like they're not my Lord, Jesus is. So if we are commonly submitting unto him, there is none of this kind of pride and bickering and debating. Now there is discussion, because iron sharpens iron. But there is a big difference between iron sharpening iron humbly and wanting to learn the master's will. Not well. I already know what the truth is over here, absolutely, on this peripheral issue of the faith. Therefore, I'm not coming to learn. I'm coming to tell you. I'm coming to teach you instead of saying, we only have one teacher with a capital T, and it is Jesus, and he teaches us through his word alone. So, some preliminary conclusions here of application. Each one of us needs to ask, okay, who am I living for? Who am I living for? Is it for my background, my, my tradition, my preferred set of applications? Is it for my social causes? Is it for this? Is it for that? Is it to point out others' sins and me to be seen as righteous? Is it for my hobbies or whatever it may be? What am I living for? Who is my Lord? And you might think, come on, Gary, it's Jesus, of course. Give us something more. I can't. This is the most fundamental discipleship principle of all. This is why we give into sin, because when we're looking at that computer screen, and deciding whether to click a button, or when our tongue is ready to be loosened and we're ready to speak something ugly to our wives, or to be unsubmissive to our husbands, or disrespectful to our parents, at that moment, we have a lordship question. We have a lordship issue. The fundamental discipleship question comes right back at us. Who is your Lord? Who is the Lord of your tongue? Who is the Lord of your attitude, your thoughts, your feelings? Is it you? If it's you, forget Jesus. Because no man can have and serve two masters. You can't serve you and him. When it's a decision about how I treat my brothers in the church, with whom I disagree in some area, again, not a fundamental moral issue or doctrinal issue, but what is it that Paul is speaking of here? As I said last week, these are secondary issues, ceremonies and applications. But how do we treat those who I disagree with in the body? Do we really have to come down to, unless everyone I am associated with can fit within the box of the things that I agree and approve of, I just have to hold them at an arm's length? Well, I wonder sometimes, if it's not the issue that divides us, but it's the way we handle those issues. Because what happens? We start feeling the blood pressure shoot up. I can't believe they're coming up with a different view than I have. Now, we don't always do this, but there is enough to cause issues. Or we listen and they say, 
Well, I think you're wrong on that interpretation. What? You think I'm wrong? You got to be kidding me. Okay, you've been a Christian for five years, and I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been on the mount with God a lot longer than you have. And yet there's only one Lord. So all of us are brothers. So there is a mutuality. Yes, there needs to be respect. The younger for the elder, as Peter and James both say. But also a sense of, it's not just if you reach this point, then you have the Holy Spirit. Our children have the Holy Spirit already. So there needs to be a great humility. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease in the way we relate to one another. But what is so compelling to me about this whole thing is, this would be somewhat easy if if it was just a matter of me that I could just work out my convictions on my own. Phew. Okay, I've got to read my books. I've got to think, and I'm going to research, and I'll come to my own conclusions. But the context of this passage is life in the body of Christ. Life in the church. Which means I don't work out these Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I don't work out for whether we live under the Lord or whether we die under the Lord. I don't work that out, just me and my family. I have to work that out within the body of Christ. We can't call, for example, when a controversy comes up, time out. Okay, six months, everyone just stay at home and study. Then we'll come together again and see... No, you don't do that. This is within the body, which means there is a level of humility that each one of us has to have to rebuke, correct, instruct. In other words, each one of us has to be open to be taught Scripture because the one commonality behind all other commonalities is we have one master, one teacher, And we are all students who sit at His feet to learn His will, to imitate His life, to trust in His blood and righteousness. For we trust in one, the Son of God, who died, rose, and revived. So we have to work out these differences. We have to work out background issues. Well, you know, I'm from the north, and I'm a Yankee. Well, I am sorry that you are a Yankee, but we still have to work within those means. Well, I hold to this really, really strongly. And in my experience, well, okay, bring your experience to the table, but bring it humbly. Don't bring it as if it is everyone else's experience. Not everyone has the same issues with their children as you have had with yours Not everyone has had the same parents you had. We all have had very different experiences, whether it be because of nationality or ceremony or economics or background. But here's like the secret, secret, secret. Jesus doesn't share his fullness and his life and his goodness and his graces and his gifts with just Sarah or just Joss or just Catalina, or just Daniel. 
Remember the image scripture uses. It is a temple in which we are all living stones. God is the one who has the master plan, not me, not you. And he is forming it into one body, which means Ben has grace that I need. Alex has gifts that I need. And I could go on and on naming names and probably need to do more of that because Jesus doesn't just dump them all out. He makes his gifts and his graces personal and individual. And if we are all humble, including in areas where we disagree, there can be discussion. There can be patience. There can be, well, I need to think about that. Let me pray about it. I may be wrong after all. I've been wrong before. And it will probably happen again. So it's okay. Because it's not about me. We're not living to ourselves or dying to ourselves. But to our one Lord. You know, this assumes too we have to be together as a body. Because the body is the context of life. There's an increasing drive, and I understand why the last few decades of, well, I've got to guard my family. I agree. We've got to guard our families. But we also have to guard the bride of Christ. So we need to really take the coming new year and ask, am I being faithful to really support this body? This body. God didn't put you in another body. If you think you need to be in another body, go to another body. But while you're in this body, support it. Be in prayer for it. Be a part of its fellowship, its worship, its prayer times, its meetings. Why? Because you are impoverished if you do not. You may think you are not. No. You think it is safer. No, it's not safer. Safer. It only seems as if it is safer if you are living for yourself because then you don't have the sometimes rougher edges of fellowship rub against you. It means you have to be challenged with other views on things. It means no one is really going to get into my face too much and say, what about this? So it's better occasionally to do what I have to do to avoid discipline. No, you need to be with the body because we are only stronger within connection within that body being sharpened, sharpening, discipling, being discipled with the body. Now, yes, this presses on us, I know. It's pressed on me. It has pressed on me over the past several years. For some of you, it cost a bit to travel to church and other events. My family has been in that situation. We understand. Some of you miss studies because you have to be up early in the morning, although I have still received text messages from you at 9 and 10 o'clock at night. Yes, I know the kids need to get up early for school, but one morning a week of being a little sleepy doesn't outweigh the benefit of studying and fellowship. I don't know about you. But I'm not going to offer the Lord something that doesn't cost me anything. I refuse to do it. Because Jesus Christ lived, died, revived. So that he could be my Lord. And so that I could function and flourish within his whole body. Think about these things. I need you. You need me. 
we need each other. And we need our one Lord. And it's not just line us all up. We've each got our pipeline to God, and that's all there is. So as long as I'm good with God, as long as I'm good with my views, everything is okay. No, it looks more like this jumbled mass of blood vessels going every which way. Well, why? Well, look at uh, over at Ephesians 4, just two verses real quick. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Notice here. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is fit jointly together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Does that sound complicated? Eh, it does a little bit. Blood vessels, ligaments, tendons, all these things interconnected in the body, feeding each other, maketh the increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. So the foot can't say, well, I'm going to take some time off from the body. I'm going, I've got to get better. No, you will not. You will get worse because the grace of God is supplied through every member to the whole. We need one another, beloved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would make us faithful to you that each one of us would be primarily concerned with living unto the Lord, that we would ask, what about this relationship? What about this activity? What about this attitude? Help us to live unto you. And when it is time for us to die, help us to die unto you, to be consecrated, to know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we thank you, O Lord, that even if we lose our minds or our strength, or are terribly diseased, we can still be consecrated to you, for you will never leave us or forsake us. Let us live in such a way that you are glorified in all that we do, say, and think. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.